What's up, everybody? We're back. It's Hit Factory. Just Aaron here today. Uh, Carly's uh, taking a break for this episode, but uh, have a, a very capable guest joining us today for a, a, a special bonus uh, episode. Uh, he is a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto and a writer uh, named Alex Ross. Alex, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for uh, having me on. I'm really excited to dive into this book uh, we're about to talk about. Pleasure to have you on, Alex. Um, the The book uh, in question is the new one from uh, culture writer Chuck Klosterman, uh, simply called The 90s. Um, and the idea for this episode came about uh, largely because Alex and I found ourselves in uh, the DMs on Twitter uh, with a whole lot of thoughts uh, around an interview that Mr. Klosterman did uh, about this new book in Vulture. Um, some people may have seen it if you are active on Twitter. I know that clips of it were kind of making the rounds when it came out. I don't know. I'll try to be as generous to it and, and nice as possible. But but it is uh, it's a bit of a mess <laughs> in terms of any sort of analysis of of the decade and and his responses and and sort of justifications for. Uh, the way that he reads a lot of cultural moments, political moments, seem a little blinkered. I don't know how you feel about it, Alex. Well, you know, it's interesting because having uh, finally read the entire book, I almost feel like uh, the interviewer at Vulture, uh, David Wallace-Wells, was almost a little too generous. Uh, it was very balanced um, in his criticism. And I think, which which is, I think, always a good sign because it will gave Klosterman uh, the ability to reveal himself and... Uh, you know, what really struck me about the interview was just a refusal to sort of engage in a discussion of politics and culture as being as feeding into each other as sort of this a weird idea that, uh, you know, as Klosterman was asking, uh, is politics upstream from culture or is culture upstream from politics? And the thing is, I mean, I think those two things really um, feed into each other. And it was kind of interesting to see the short shrift that he was really giving um not only to important cultural events, but also his defense of a kind of, um, well, that's not really uh, the way we thought about it at the time. That sort of that was invoked quite quite heavily. Yeah, absolutely. I, I noticed that throughout the interview and was curious about it uh, in, in approaching the long form and in, in looking at the book. And it's it's one of the things that stood out to me abruptly within almost every chapter of this like 300 plus pages is that so much of it is predicated on this idea that things felt a different way in the moment or that the, the sort of cultural consensus uh, was different than what the revisionist take or, or the retrospective idea on a thing would be. Which I, th- I think starts from like a really problematic place in general when you when it comes to writing something that is meant to be a, a survey of a particular time period. You know, like I don't think Klosterman is is you know swinging for the fences in terms of being like a, a new heralded historian of any kind. And I think you know he he kind of sets the expectations pretty low from the get go, but to not make any attempt to try to like make sense of different narrative threads to not try to like cohere them into some sort of explanation uh, beyond individual single happenings, you know, cutting that sort of like sinew and tissue away and showing the way that things are sort of compounding effects on one another throughout the, like the, the length of the decade or a year or, or particular proximities. It, it, to me, 
almost kind of made me from the get-go question what what the point of the book even was. Well, you know, it's interesting because um, uh, while I was reading the book, uh, I was thinking a lot about the David Lynch movie Lost Highway um, Hmm. because um, in Lost Highway, um, there's this really interesting scene because uh, for people, you know, don't know, I mean, Lost Highway um it's uh it's a it's a uh, david lynch movie from the late 90s and uh in it um bill pullman plays this uh successful la jazz musician named fred madison and the beginning of the movie you know fred and and his wife renee who's played by patricia arquette they're very very alienated from each other they seem to be haunted by these really dark forces and um somebody leaves a, a mysterious videotape on their doorstep um and somebody's been recording them secretly while they sleep and so when one of the LAPD officers is there, um, they ask him, well, do you have a camcorder? And uh, Renee says, well, no, he doesn't like them. And um, there's this really interesting response uh, that I think is very vital for understanding the movie. And it's uh, when Fred Madison uh, says, um, you know, uh, I like to remember things my own way, not necessarily the way they happened. So I think that's really the thesis of the book. Chuck Klosterman is here to remember the 90s in his own way, not necessarily the way that it happened. And this is sort of the conceit at the very beginning of the book. You know, he um, says, um, there's always a disconnect between the world we seem to remember and the world that actually was. What's complicated about the 1990s is that the central illusion is memory itself. And, you know, that's quite an evocative opening. And you think, oh, well, maybe, you know, this is going to go in an interesting direction because one of the things Klosterman points out is that, well, the 90s were hypermediated, but they hadn't been fully mapped out by the internet yet. Um, so there was still sort of uh, this kind of fuzziness of memory. Unfortunately, as you get through the book, you realize that this isn't some sort of uh, way of <laughs> providing a counterintuitive reading of the 90s or a reading of the 90s that we haven't seen before, but really a kind of uh, crutch or justification so that Klosterman can narrate the hits, essentially. Uh, it becomes apparent right away where Klosterman's kind of cultural and political blind spots rest. Uh, they're they're even abundantly clear, I think, in in the interview uh, with Vulture that he did. You know, I, we said already that the interviewer was pretty gracious and kind of lets lets Klosterman reveal himself a little bit, but he does push back on a couple of things, you know, and and challenges Klosterman's concept of sort of a a monoculture, specifically in the simplest terms, one that I, I think is just you know, kind of grunge culture, I think is what, what Klosterman <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, perceives <laughs> as being like the single sort of like guiding ethos of the time. And the interviewer kind of points out and asks, you know, like, well, what about hip hop culture? You know, this is, this is sort of like the golden age and, and like mm-hmm. sort of a Renaissance period for hip hop. And Klosterman immediately admits, oh, I don't know as much about that. So I didn't write about it. But every step of the way, you know, it seems like he wants to I don't know, both like uh, both obfuscate like a, a, a revisionist sort of like cohesion to everything, but also try to claim that his particular way of viewing things was the way it was for most people. Like before we do a deeper dive, uh, I, I wanted to get your uh, thoughts. Why do you think he wrote the book? Why, why now? Why in 2022 is Chuck Klosterman publishing his retrospective of the 90s? Why didn't he write this in 2010 or 2005 or you know why? why now? 
It's a really good question. And actually, one of the notes that I made was that it feels a lot like a 90s retrospective that may have been written a decade ago. Um, it, it, it feels yeah. a lot like a, like an Obama era kind of like a reminiscence of, of a bygone decade, specifically, I think, in the ways in which it it offers a lot of a very blatant kind of like Clintonite third way apologia, you know, like it is definitely <laughs> sort of like, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it definitely kind of runs some defense for, uh, for the sort of centrist model and then sort of like neoliberal models that, uh, that Obama was adopting very readily, uh, shortly after the 2008 election and definitely in his second term. But I mean, it's, it's hard to make sense of why he does it beyond maybe some impulse of, of, generational nostalgia i think that he really wants to kind of like carve out a justification for or a defense of gen xers of which he is a part uh, of which he says is the least annoying generation uh which um <laughs> citation needed uh, big time citation needed yeah because judging from the book it uh, he uh, contradicts that that claim pretty quickly <laughs> You know, he makes the claim in, in the book, you know, he says it's it's the least annoying generation, the one that complains the least. Uh, he also says that it's it's the smallest generation, which I think statistically is correct, you know, between the boomers and, and millennials. Uh, and then also says that it's probably the the only like generation that will never elect a, a member of its body. Uh, to the office of the presidency early on. Beto O'Rourke was their one shot, you know? They they (laughs) couldn't get Beto Beto in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and so, you know, I I, I don't know. I mean, I'll leave that question to you if you have ideas on it. I'd love to hear because to me, I I just kept butting up against this question of why why is this a necessary uh, thing to write? Why is this collection of essays imperative to be kind of uh, structured around this particular decade and, and this culture. Yeah. It's really interesting um, that you point out that you think this is a book that should have been written a decade ago. Cause that was my exact thought while reading it. Um, and I I've actually made the exact same note. Um, it does feel like a book that should have come out around the same time as uh, Carl Wilson's let's talk about love, you know, this idea of, of this kind of optimist, <laughs> kind of survey um because it's weird i guess i always thought of of for some reason i I don't know we don't need to get into the 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 technicalities of this for some i guess because you know especially with his writing about cobain i always thought of um klosterman as a bit of a rockist you know he would have been maybe maybe when he's much younger he would have identified but this book is very much a poptimist kind of view of the 90s and of 90s culture and um yeah it does feel like a book that would have, you know, would have come out in 2010, you know, 20 years past the 90s. And it does feel, other than, you know, the chapter um, that acknowledges the COVID-19 pandemic and a few other contemporary events, you know, it would be interesting to find out the process of writing. Maybe this is an idea that he had had, you know, 10 years ago, and he'd written some of the initial essays, or some of the, some, or, you know, and then finally kind of it cohered into a, into a book of some kind. I, I'm also wondering if maybe some of it is, um, you know, Klosterman, you know, he's born in the 70s. He was in his 20s in the 1990s. He's kind of approaching that middle age. So maybe that's another thing is that, you know, there's a feeling of needing to collect uh, his final thoughts. But, you know, I was sort of hoping that maybe there would be some more things that maybe I, I hadn't heard before or that were different. But really, if you have, you know, if you grew up, even if you were a child in the 90s, if you've read anything, you know, in the last 15, 20 years, 
if you watched a VH1 documentary about the 90s, you were going to get a lot of the same uh, things. You know, he's, as I said before, he kind of narrates the hits a little bit. Uh, It has this really dizzying kind of effect where, you know, I I found myself uh, kind of repelled by certain chapters or, or particular moments in the book. I, I wouldn't have imagined that it would be this way, just knowing, you know, the kind of process of of scrolling through a Twitter feed and, you know, seeing somebody <laughs> shit, like seeing somebody shit posting and then followed immediately yeah. by, you know, like seeing the death toll of the latest, uh, you know, international conflict or, you, you know, just, just this idea of like doom scrolling and just kind of the the constant influx of all sort of different tonalities and things coming at you all the time. I would have expected that I was being, I was, I was going to be more primed for that sort of jumping around within within the text. Uh, but it still threw me off, you know, every single time that a, a chapter would open by talking about like the domestic box office performance of Titanic and Romeo and Juliet, <laughs> and then immediately switch to yeah. uh, Timothy McVeigh and like the Oklahoma City bombing, you know, like it, it, it didn't cohere for me. It didn't ever feel like it was coming together in a way that it was intended. And I often found myself at the end of every chapter struggling to understand thematically why right. a lot of those things were coupled together. It's also weird because it almost feels too monotonous as well to actually be an effective mosaic, right? Because there's one way in which you could argue that that type of writing could be interesting as trying to capture a lot of little moments and, and try to provide a kind of summation. But the thing is that, you know, he kind of monotonously kind of goes through a lot of the things that, you know, you would expect from a book like this, you know, Generation X is both, you know, uh, misunderstood, but also kind of meeting some of the characters that people have, uh, you know, um, uh, people not expecting Titanic to be a hit, and then it dominating the box office. Um, you know, uh, uh, the, the differences between Alanis Morissette and Liz Fair and the fight over authenticity <laughs> and things like that, you know, and what, but what's funny, though, is that, um, I, I, that repulsion, I also felt it at times, but often it was because of Klosterman's very bizarre, uh, part of it was when he talked about politics, and I guess we'll get into this more, uh, there was a lot of bitterness, I felt like, towards the contemporary view. I think that it's interesting because he, he front loads most of the book with kind of cultural writing, and it's really kind of as you get further in, you sort of really get his perspective on, on uh, his political perspectives. Which um, he seems quite angry, actually. He seems quite upset. Um, you know, at one point when talking about Bill Clinton, uh, he says that, you know, being mad at uh, uh, a former president is like being mad at somebody in high school. It's a little pathetic and deranged. And I think this is supposed to be a joke, but it doesn't feel like Klosterman is laughing. You know, he, he is kind of quite frustrated um, in the ways in which people talk about and engage with things politically. And I think that might also be a clue as to what this book is about. It's sort of like, you know, whenever Steven Pinker writes another book about why actually we live in the best of all possible worlds, it feels like this is the <laughs> kind of hipster uh, version of that, where it's like, well, you know what, we need to uh, preserve the 90s as this time of economic prosperity and like introspection and people kind of doing lots of weird different things and people being content to be unambitious and all the sorts of things, because to question that is also to question a whole other string of narratives and a whole other life story and a whole other way of seeing the world, which I think he's quite uncomfortable with. Uh, I, I think that one of the most telling aspects of the book and of the interview um, that, that, that came out pretty clearly is that in the intervening years between 
you know, the, the end of the nineties. And now that, uh, a member of the generation that grew up during it has failed to reconcile really any of the dissonance of the era in any sort of cogent way that takes on a, a materialist lens or, or any sort of, uh, you know, political reality outside of just the, uh, the, the sort of sequence of, of events as they unfold. Um, you know, it, it, it's this sort of kind of abject pastlessness and, and futurelessness all at once. Like, like it's just a constant kind of present and now that he seems to occupy, even as he's reflecting and, and looking back with this sort of nostalgic haze as if, as if we're not living in the consequences of the nineties, as if the right. were a self-contained kind <laughs> yeah. of, kind of era. Um, and that it, when culture shifted, it was a paradigm shift and also uh, a resetting, right? That almost as if the internet age has brought us like back to sort of like a, a ground zero and that, uh, that things have started back from that, from that place rather than, you know, it, it being a cumulative effect. But what's upsetting is that he doesn't really do anything interesting with that. Like that could be so interesting, like talking about mediation, like he sort of gestures towards, you know, Baudrillard's, you know, the Gulf War did not happen. He, he gestures towards this idea of, of events sort of being um, told to you by the media in a particular way. Like he brings up in the interview, the Columbine uh, shooting and, and that cha- chapter sauropods, I think that's where he sort of, provides a lot of his very weird overview of, of some of the big media events of the time, like the O.J. Simpson trial, the Anita Hill hearings. But he never really sticks to the landing. He never really kind of is, in, he's not interested in exploring those questions about mediation and memory, which are set up at the beginning of the book. It's really just that he's setting those up so that if somebody critiques him and says, well, why didn't you talk about this? Or why didn't you think through this? Or what about this sort of big event? Um, he might be able to say, well, you know, that this is, you know, the nineties is an unsettled era, you know, I'm providing my own take on it. And, and it really is a crutch for him to lean on. I mean, I mean, then there are some surprising events that I, I think aren't in there. I mean, um, you know, there's no mention of Rwanda. There's no mention of, uh, of Bosnia, um, yeah. which I mean, I mean, look, even as a kid, I remember, you know, though I was, I was pretty young. I don't think those things were necessarily isolated from the nineties. Those things were, those are seen as kind of definitive um, political and international events. His, okay. The first sign of trouble for me is that chapter very early on about the 1992 presidential election. It, absolutely. which I think I've said to you a few times, it's just absolutely baffling to me. No, it's, it's incredibly uh, confusing. I think that one is called, uh, if I remember correctly, 19%, right? That's the, the second yeah. chapter. Um, and I, th- I think we might as well just go right into that since we've already talked a little bit about some of the the broader arguments that he lays out in that first chapter of, uh, you know, the the battle of who could who could care less, I think, is what it's called. You know, this idea <laughs> right. of, of like a, a monoculture around uh, a, a level of detachment and remove. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, just just briefly going into that one before we jump into to 19 percent. He kind of presupposes that that Gen Xers, as opposed to uh, millennials or or Gen Z or anyone who's come afterward, 
had some sort of clarity to the thing that they were discontent with or protesting rather than the the nature of you know this this rallying against consumerism and this idea of slackerdom and and a disconnect and remove from you know the traditions of of classic like mid-century america rather than that being an expression of a complete uh, inability to reconcile what's happening this sort of like uh, end of history moment, as as you know, we uh, mentioned and he mentions in the book. It uh, to me, you know, in in retrospect, and again, maybe this is that revisionism that Klosterman is critiquing. But so much of those expressions, so much of that stuff that you see in like reality bites that he seems really obsessed with, so much of that stuff in like Linklater's Slacker seems to come from this just like feeling of futurelessness without any real way of of understanding it that it doesn't cohere together that it doesn't have an explanation because we didn't have like a language or a literacy yet um and and definitely didn't have i think as robust a left political movement in the west and, and in america and north america specifically to kind of speak to that they're like there's there's no material analysis happening there in the 90s there's no there's no <laughs> well, dialect there, there's a lot of there, you know computers you know there's a lot of uh you know digital utopianism uh, which actually i think it's short shrift in the, in the book but yeah you're right like i mean i think it's like because it's like well we did you know we defeated the soviet union you know quote unquote defeated um the cold war is over america you know liberal capitalist democracy is just going to continue to flourish everywhere but there's even very early on there's a sense of like is that it? Like, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, Slacker, I think is a great movie to bring up because, you know, even that's a movie that you can analyze just as a cultural object and think about the way in which it kind of presents a particular type of alienation. Um, so yeah, I think that's great to, to, to mention that, that there's this feeling of like rootlessness and futurelessness to everything. This is one of those moments to me that feels like uh, like Chuck giving up the game a little bit, right? Where uh, you know he's he's willing to revise this particular sensation and and point to that feeling as being one that's I think much more clarion in its understanding of the world and and of the structures of it than it actually was at the time. Um, but but easy for him to dismiss other things that may be a much more critical uh, or you know diminutive analysis of of anything that uh, that he takes favor with but jumping into that that chapter 19% on the 1992 presidential election um i do find this one very fascinating this is the point at which i think the the thing really starts cooking with gas and i really started like scribbling and and furiously <laughs> highlighting things cooking with gas is a great way of <laughs> <laughs> talking about it yeah or maybe just you know turning the gas on and like just letting it letting it kind of <laughs> yeah, linger forget. <laughs> uh, yeah just forgetting forget. <laughs> yeah just, yeah, just there's a, definitely some some galaxy brain uh stuff in this one yeah just a carbon monoxide leak of a chapter <laughs> um so he he aims his sights pretty specifically at ross perot during this chapter and uh, much of the the argument that he makes is that Perot's involvement as a third party candidate or as an al- alternative to uh, H.W. and Clinton actually meant uh, that uh, that Bush had a much harder time as an incumbent uh, getting elected. Uh, he, he makes an interesting kind of case for that. You know, the idea that he won uh, several districts that that bush had taken in in the previous election um but the kind of nuances of like what he's saying and the idea that he makes the argument that the gop probably wouldn't have radicalized the way that it did 
if Clinton hadn't won that election, I think is like a, a very naive kind of perspective. Well, because to have that perspective, you have to look at everything in isolation and you can't look at anything that happened before. I mean, the Republicans were already radicalizing, I think, quite heavily under Reagan, you know, as well as the entire right wing movement. I mean, the 80s sees the rise of neoconservatism, neoconservative foreign policy at a time when the Soviet Union is quite clearly collapsing. Um, you have right-wing preachers getting up onto their pulpits and denouncing the spread of Marxism-Leninism in the United States. You have a new Red Scare. You have widespread uh, moral panic, which is also, I think, part of that Red Scare moment. Like, you know, um, people thinking that, you know, Dungeons and Dragons and uh, listening to rock music, you know, is, is creating a satanic pop culture. Um, uh, you know, you also have... Um, you know, when Reagan said it's morning in America, I mean, that meant something very specific and, and activated, I think, uh, elements that had been of, I think, the radical right that had been quite underground, but were growing. And then you go into the 90s. OK, you know, when Bush is still president, you have the siege at uh, Ruby Ridge. OK, that is uh, ground zero for the patriot movement, for the militia movement uh, that grows in the United States. And then two years later. Uh, you have Waco. And it's funny because he mentions those in the book later on, but those are just media events to kind of explain, okay, well, this was the media that Timothy McVeigh was consuming that eventually led to the Oklahoma City bombing. But it's like, no, that's evidence of a radicalizing of the right. That is evidence of a growing extremist element. I mean, McVeigh was totally immersed uh, in different patriot and white supremacist movements. And it's like, the thing is, that is like that's not even a revi- that's not a revisionist take. That is a dominant strain of '90s culture of this mix of conspiracism. You know, you have the rise of Alex Jones. You have him kind of starting off as a figure in Austin, right? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just weird to me. It's such a bizarre take. And then and then he also says, as kind of a companion to that, that we don't know the direction the Democrats would have gone in if. Clinton had lost. I mean, come on. They 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 were going in a certain direction already, and they would have kept going that direction whether Clinton had won or lost. In the same way that, you know, they've continued going in the specific centrist third way direction, whether they win or lose. If they win, it's because they tucked uh, they they tacked to the center. If they lose, it's because they didn't tack to the center enough. You know, whatever the center is defined as at the time. So it really requires just ignoring so many other contextual things to kind of say that, well, you know, it was because of personal animus towards Clinton, which is, you know, a popular narrative. And I'm sure, I mean, there was quite an invective, but there would have been invective towards any Democrat who was president at the time. One of the other things I noticed that he seems to kind of disregard or or make no mention of whatsoever is uh, the Democratic Leadership Council and like this, this, these new Democrats that spawned up in like the mid eighties. He seems to kind of believe that uh, much of much of the sort of, as he calls it, revisionism, much of the criticism towards Clinton, towards, you know, this kind of uh, new Democrat policy and, and model comes from some sort of like leftward shift within the cultural consensus and doesn't seem to ever acknowledge the fact that the new Democrats themselves were born out of this idea of trying to diminish left movements within the democratic base in general, you know, stepping away from the ideas of the more kind of radical positions of, of the civil rights era in the 1960s, you know, a lot of those movements, it, it, it just seems again, you know, like, like not factoring in or contextualizing any way, any of these other sort of uh, 
specific moments or, or, or actions on behalf of them that, that everything sort of exists in this kind of like present where things are, are beginning and ending in a moment and, and have no cumulative effect. You know, it's actually funny, um, speaking of personal invective uh, towards Clinton, that the source of so much of that was from David Brock, who eventually switched sides. Do you ever think about that, how weird that is? Like David Brock, who kind of helped create a lot of the, you know, because there's lots of things we can criticize the Clinton forms, but he promoted, I mean, some of the, you know, like things like Vince Foster and Whitewater and the things that have still like Clinton body count, that was all David Brock, but then he switched sides. And was part of Hillary's disastrous 2016 campaign, and I feel like that—that's kind of an interesting thing to, to think about too. It's like the guy who probably came up with the smears that everybody kind of remembers from the 90s, apart from from other things you can criticize uh, Clinton for as president. You know, he—he, he, I get, you know, he, he eventually kind of joins the other team, and it's like, what what does that mean? I mean, you know, it's just kind of really funny, you know, to think about. One of the other things that I notice about this chapter, and then. Uh you know, he sort of mirrors with his final chapter is that uh, he kind of makes the argument in in both cases that uh, the same block of voters who would vote for a third party candidate are driven by the same sort of uh, frustration with mm. the system or with the two party model likens all of the, the same people who voted for uh, Perot to the same people who may have voted for Trump because they saw him as an anti-establishment candidate. He at least begs the question. I think he kind of says that that there's a possibility that that's not the case. Um, but there is a, a kind of profound diminishing within it of any sort of political projects that operate outside of the kind of left-right binary of, of the GOP and the Democratic Party. Yeah, and also once again, like how Perot was also a creature of the the times and sense of things like NAFTA and global trade and the kind of move towards globalization and how that was a particular movement that did actually bring together sometimes right and left elements. It did have a very specific left wing critique that um, was often, I think, quite marginalized in the '90s or even parodied uh, to some degree. Though that was kind of, and that was part of that whole kind of wave of, of kind of anti-commercialism, culture jamming, but you know, was a very significant element of the '90s too in terms of people doing left-wing organizing, kind of these anti-WTO and anti-globalization and G7 protests. And then yeah, you have the right-wing version, right, which is you know quite nativist and um, and and populist in a very right-wing way. And yeah, the fact that those might be different things um, in that the same people who voted for Perot might have percolated towards other types of politics, you know, um, isn't really factored in because I think Klosterman wants to preserve this idea that part of the reason Perot was voted for was, well, this was a low stakes election, right? That's something, that's another idea that, well, without, you know, the, without the cold war, you know, w what's the point of even really caring about who to vote for, for president. And it's weird too, because like, obviously the candidates themselves didn't treat it that way. I mean, you know, Bill Clinton was constantly appearing on MTV and, and I guess there was a, maybe you could say that there is a, a rising image politics, but it, it's weird to sort of just say like going with that received idea that everybody is just like the characters in reality bites and have, has these kind of incoherent, you know, ideas about what politics are. And that's why, you know, Ross Perot is able to emerge as a figure, even if it, it, just to think about, well, you know, this is a time period where, okay, if, if we've gone past this particular narrative um, that was so dominant throughout the mid 20th century, um, 
you know, what's the new narrative? What's the new way of looking at the world? And, and, and finding the interest in sort of exploring that. And that's where I think that could have been an opportunity to sort of excavate things that um, aren't really talked about or thought of in terms of, you know, 90s political culture. But he doesn't really dive into that. He just kind of goes, I think, with the received idea of what the 90s were about politically. Yeah. I th- and I think it's one of the great failures of the book, you know, not to say that uh, I think anyone expected Klosterman to be a grand historian, you know, or, or someone who was yeah. you know, meticulously researching any of these any of these things beyond what was necessary. But part of the project of history or, or historicizing something at all is to take the prevailing narratives and take what people were saying and make sense of those things in a modern context, you know, look at those things through a lens that does have some sense of not revisionism, but clarity to it, you know, and uh he doesn't seem interested at all in doing that. He seems to, to stand by the idea that the, uh, the sort of prevailing logic or, or the, the messaging of the time or the sort of official narrative of things uh, from, from the, the era in which those events took place is the correct one. It, it, it happens so often in the book, and I don't know if you caught it, but, but I, I began to kind of look for it with every single uh, more kind of maybe challenging or or you know kind of uh paradigm shifting cultural event that he talks about where he will sort of uh give himself a, a little bit of leeway by writing at the end uh the the impact of this thing is still to be determined or he will say something along the right. lines of like this this uh thing is still up for debate or you know or you could look at this thing two different ways one way would be this and one way would be this and he, he always he does that a lot kind of, yeah he never he never gives any sort of like definitive perspectives on anything he he leaves everything very broad and open based on in, on interpretations you know, everybody found everything, you know, that they were looking for at the time, but they also didn't or something like that. Like, there's always these kind of negatives <laughs> where it's like, um, you know, people, you know, experienced the event this one way, but actually they did, they, they didn't experience it that way. You know, so yeah, he, he constantly leaves himself a lot of outs in terms of just these kind of weird double negatives. The other thing I noticed was this mantra, like the kind of claim about memory kind of mushrooms into this huger claim about the past like by the by like i think page 215 he's saying that you know um the past is not just a foreign cult uh country it's an alternative cosmos you know the past has gone from this thing that's maybe a little fuzzy to now it is so unknowable you know it's ineffable it's you know so beyond our understanding you know um and, and, you know, and that'll be about like, you know, the popularity of Prozac Nation or something. <laughs> it's not even like a necessarily very <laughs> profound thing. It's like, you know, the unexpected popularity of, you know, um, of the weasel, you know, <laughs> mm. and, and Polly Shore and stuff. Yeah. Uh, he, he always uh, bookends chapters with these <laughs> little like minor chapters. Yeah. Uh, that, that don't weird. have numbers, but have like kind of subheadings. Uh, I, I wonder if it's just excess things that he wanted to make sure he fits in without any sort of like larger uh, narrative behind it or, or sort of thematic purpose. Um, but but I found them interesting. The the one of the first of which is called Casual Determinism, that talks both about the 1993 uh, Joel Schumacher film Falling Down, but also begins with uh, the first attempt in 1993 to blow up the World Trade Center. There's a there's a one off line where he simply says it was a brazen attack with unclear motives, and I <laughs> right, and I yeah. and I found that very troubling considering the fact that uh, that Ramzi Youssef and and the the men responsible for for that terrorist attack uh, explicitly like wrote out a manifesto and sent it to to various <laughs> newspapers. I, I, hindsight is twenty twenty, but it's an interesting thing to 
have just like kind of one-offs like that where uh, in this you know document of, of historicizing or, or lending certain credences to things, uh, he's willing to kind of make these these remarks so definitively that this thing, as you said, is ineffable. It's unknowable. We don't really we don't really have an answer to why this thing happened. Yeah, I mean, actually, one of the one of the interstitial chapters is called uh, "The Slow Cancellation of the Future and the Fast Homogenization of the Past," and I was expecting. Yeah, I was expecting maybe a little bit of Mark Fisher. I thought, oh, is he going to get into like Mark Fisher's discussion about the death of genres, you know, and and how you know as um, cap- late capitalism has progressed, you know, the move, the ability to move from different types of music kind of gets uh, things get more homogenized. But weirdly, he doesn't. Like he, he's mostly about how there was a lot of nostalgia for uh, the seventies and the nineteen nineties. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, that's sort of interesting. Like, you know, it's something that actually I think maybe people might forget about. And if you look at a film like Pulp Fiction or Dazed and Confused or, you know, even Weezer's video for Buddy Holly, which is set <laughs> in Happy Days. Like there, there is actually a kind of like 70s nostalgia, but that's all it's about. Like, it's not actually about, I mean, and I guess it's sort of the lead in to the video store chapter. But, you know... He says, the 70s were beloved, but not as a historical period. The 70s were beloved as a collection of stuff, some of which was cherished precisely because now it seemed dumb. And it's like, and then he goes to talk about that 70s show, but it feels like, well, shouldn't there be a bit more? I don't know. It's weird. Like, I felt like, well, shouldn't there be more? Like, shouldn't there be kind of, I I don't know, maybe maybe it's too much to sort of at this point expect a a maybe slightly more materialist analysis, you know, something a lot more along the lines of (laughs) of Mark Fisher. But once again, it's weird because that's almost like a commentary on his book. Like his book is a collection of stuff. You know, it's a collection of just different stuff. It's like somebody going through their trunk and going, Hey, remember this? You know, I guess it's not really a good critic. I wouldn't say it's good criticism to say to somebody, well, you didn't really, you know, why didn't you write uh, this in the book? But I do think it's kind of interesting. I guess he's not really a gamer. I always think maybe we can get into this later, but I've always think about games as sort of also being a kind of, form of media that matured quite a bit in the 90s and really kind of solidified. Uh, If we move on to another chapter called The Edge as Viewed from the Middle, Uh, we already alluded to a little (laughs) bit about this. I I think this is a very interesting one. I think this is even where the the, uh, Liz Fair and Alanis Morissette stuff and and that 70s show things come up a little bit later. Um, But but a, a big portion of the chapter is dedicated to uh, the debate around obscenity, uh, specifically as it pertains to music and lyrics. Um, one thing that I noticed that he doesn't point out at all, despite uh, exclusively focusing on hip-hop, R&B, black artists, uh, makes no mention of the fact that those are the ones that were most frequently targeted with these, mm-hmm. these accusations of obscenity. Yeah. Um But uh, as we already mentioned, he spends roughly uh, half a page talking about uh, the Rodney King beating and the subsequent exoneration of of the police officers involved, uh, the riots that happened afterward. Uh, And he uses all of that just to offer context around the obscenity debate for for Ice-T's cop killer. <laughs> uh, rather, body count. I guess his his metal band body count in the song "Cop Killer." Um, Embarrassingly, I did not know that that body count was a was a, a heavy metal band. So I have to confess something because I've actually I've actually you know what this is weird. This is a blind spot for me. I've actually never listened to Cop Killer. So I know about Ice T. I mean, I grew up seeing Ice T on uh, on SVU, right? Yeah. And that's where I first mm-hmm. and, I, and I know oh, okay. And I follow him on Twitter, um, which is just pretty entertaining. But like. Yeah, I actually, I, I feel bad that I didn't know that Ice-T had fronted a, a rock band, 
actually front front in a metal band. It's it's a hard thing to know. In fact, you know, like the the conversation around him uh, removing Cop Killer from pressings of of the Body Count album, mm. uh, and it's it's not available digitally really anywhere except you know on on YouTube rips and maybe if you can find like an errant MP3 that went around from those like initial CD pressings after someone ripped it. Uh, but but it it is incredibly hard to find. Uh, and I, I only know about it because of of the debate and the conversation around it. Really, I, I can't say that I've listened to any of the other tracks on that Body Count record. Um, <laughs> but yeah, to to emphasize it so much seems, uh, you know, very very interesting to me. Uh, interesting may be like a bad word for it, right? But uh, one of the things that I, I find so interesting about the conversation around Cop Killer that he brings up uh, is when he says this. An anti-cop viewpoint was not universal, but what mattered was this was now a possible viewpoint to hold, even if you weren't young or black or living in Los Angeles. And I was, I, mm. I, I, I wrote what the fuck next to it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Only because, you know, there's this, I think, uh, is is uh, a reflection of that conversation and that question that he posits within the Vulture interview about, you know, culture downstream from politics, politics downstream from culture. Uh, and seems to me to to almost kind of be making the argument that uh, before Cop Killer and and since Cop Killer was released, no, no one had ever thought about the concept of being anti police. No one had ever thought about no. the ideas of of racial oppression or or actually quite police. famously, RoboCop is a very pro police movie. Uh, or so I've been told <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs> and and that's my point exactly. Is you know like if you're talking about this you know sense of like uh, like uh, you know this object present, this this lack of a past and 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 this futurelessness, it's so fascinating to me to to make this the 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 inflecting sort of the the inflection point of of any sort of anti-cop sympathies in a in a broader larger cultural sense outside of a particular proximity i i find it's the case in a lot of the things that he talks about where he may, he may be granting a, a lot more import to particular cultural moments or artifacts than is due not to say that he shouldn't you know emphasize them or think about them i i actually find the best chapters in the book the ones that he dedicates purely to just cultural critique you know his his one of the middle chapters where he's talking about the rise of independent cinema talking about sort of the the love of tarantino the the way that kevin smith came along and sort of revolutionized kind of a a small micro budget talky indie feature i i find that stuff interesting and and i think you know pretty free of any sort of objections but it's it's when he tries to extend it outward to make it into a a broader larger cultural critique again that it feels like it's it's projection yeah oh man actually it's so funny because i i think that didn't scan for me at first because i was thinking about a lot of the other political things but you know hearing you articulate it 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 is so strange it's such a strange you know because you would even think even within his particular wheelhouse which does not focus on hip-hop he'd still be able to sort of figure that out but do you think it sort of speaks to maybe some of the other weird political conclusions that he has so that kind of is a clue as to maybe where his kind of biases or, or prejudices are um you know or just at least you know my, myopia in terms of just like approaching this yeah again i think it just speaks to kind of a a projection broadly onto mm. culture of like you know specific defining moments in in his own life and i think that that's ultimately like one of the things that I take the most umbrage with, which is if these had been written as sort of like personal essays and narratives about 
his own evolution or experience with these yeah. things through the decade, I think it would have come off as uh, more entertaining. And I think that sort of like frenzied kind of quality to it would be more appropriate, would have felt more in line with his his kind of reach. previous work. Yeah. yeah, it's weird because he does kind of give the view from nowhere a little bit like it's not there's not a really much of an eye subject, even though I mean, it's there if you're looking for it, but it's not like, well, I was talking to my friends and we had a debate about whether or not Nelson Mandela was still alive or, you know, I was sort of thinking about cop killer in this way. Like, cause I mean, you know, he was an adult in the nineties. I mean, you know, we were just reminiscing and, but I mean, we were kids in <laughs> the nineties, but yeah. he actually was like in his twenties. So it's, it's, it is weird that he kind of absences himself from it to kind of give himself this kind of survey, this kind of cultural kind of, I'm going to do this overview um, do, do you have any maybe thoughts about why he did that? Why he chose to kind of, do you think he wanted to kind of provide a different type of narrative structure or do you think it felt like it made it more objective, even though it's supposed to be a very subjective book? Yeah. I mean, I think it tries, it, it's making attempts at, at credibility, you know, and maybe objectivity. Right. I, th- I think maybe that that's the, the simplest explanation for it. I think he's trying to, uh, avoid that, that's subjective kind of narrative component to it. But by doing so, I think, again, he sort of like broadly generalizes his his unique experiences as being something indicative of culture at large. It kind of feels like, you know, like that would sort of like be me saying nobody had ever thought about or fetishized women's underwear until Cisco released the thong song, you know, like, <laughs> like. Like, the, right, like yeah. that, that's just like yeah. a completely ahistorical thing and, and maybe true of me, right? Like, oh yeah, like now I, you know, I'm singing the thong song, but <laughs> it, nobody talked about culture. using drugs until then I got high, you know, nobody, exactly. nobody talked about, uh, yeah, it is a very strange projection. Um, and I think this speaks to the way in which he blow. you're right. He just totally blows up certain moments, uh, and makes them kind of of cosmic importance, yeah. you know, um, I think the most damning example of this is the uh, considerable length granted to clear liquids, <laughs> uh, <laughs> specifically, you know, like or or the clarifying of dark beverages um, like uh, like Crystal Pepsi and Zima. You know, he he spends a, a great deal of time on that and talking about the sort of emphasis on purity and in consumption of sugary sodas. Or, or but, okay, everything. but you know what's weird about that chapter? He doesn't talk about okay. So on the cover is a clear plastic phone where you can see the guts, right? Yes. He doesn't talk about that at all. Like I was expecting when I started reading that, oh, he's going to talk about it. Yeah, everybody had like clear plastic Game Boys and you know, you had the IMAX with the kind of the the clear back, like the with the different colors. So yeah. I thought, oh, he's going to talk about this kind of weird yeah, it was a weird obsession with like, you know, transparent goods and and making everything clear plastic and there was sort of a kind of revival of that kind of 60s kind of I guess maybe partly because of Austin Powers a kind of like 60s kind of style mm-hmm. of plastic you know yeah he doesn't talk about it he doesn't it doesn't come up at all it's just more like oh yeah and then like um um uh, coke uh kamikaze uh you know crystal pepsi with a new version of tab and it's like oh great okay <laughs> like yeah. what yeah it doesn't it doesn't really develop into anything which is you can say actually unfortunately about a lot of parts of the book he, he mentions like in the internet chapter, sorry if I hope I'm not jumping ahead too much, but no, like, that, that's know, exactly where you know, I was he, going next. Yeah. He references, you know, being digital by, by uh, uh, Nicholas Negroponte and the site, and, you know, and he, I think quite correctly criticizes some of this utopianism, but then he doesn't really talk about what that moment was like and, and how pervasive it was. You know, I mean, even though, um, 
you know, I was a kid, I remember Wired Magazine quite distinctly because, you know, you go to the library and it would stand out on the shelf because it was so, I mean, they embraced deliberately a kind of a psychedelic aesthetic. And, you know, and um, I guess this is because of my own research interests in, um, you know, things like, you know, the history of media and, uh, and games and things like that, where, you know, I thought, you know, I, I find the whole kind of development of computer culture and internet culture just really fascinating. I found his discussion of, the rise of digitality um, very unsatisfying because even if, or even though, sorry, it was, you know, um, it started off as a niche phenomenon, it very quickly became dominant. I mean, one of the things, I mean, you had the dot com boom, you had stocks jumping 3000%. Uh, um, you had uh, just this rhetoric of, you know, the world is going to be completely transformed. Uh, by the digital age, we're in the cusp of digital revolution. People are going to become digital natives, you know, and um, and that was very much in the air. Even if you weren't somebody who was using the internet a lot, like I didn't get the internet at home until probably the late '90s, but you know, I was aware that it was a thing and that it was around and that there was something different, you know, just by osmosis. Like I knew that there was something different going on, and then you look back at the time period. I mean, that was such a big thing. I mean, even before the internet took off, cyber, like so things like cyberpunk, and I don't know, there's all these kind of interesting avenues you feel like could be brought in. But it, it goes back to what you're saying before, where he blows up one particular thing and then ignores a whole bunch of others. Sort of the centerpiece of the of the book is that that very long chapter on on the internet simply <laughs> called control alt delete it's it's the thing that takes up the most space in the book uh, of, of anything uh, i also found it to be probably the most tedious read oh, <laughs> in yeah, the entire thing uh, and i think you know this kind of is maybe one of the most uh one of the most blatant examples of that that uh, frustration i had with like not pulling this out and and writing it with any sort of sense of reflection is that, you know, he, he spends a great deal of time talking about and very softly kind of indicting these uh, sort of techno evangelists and these, you know, these sort of people who were proselytizing some sort of, you know, grand idea of a libertarian future on the internet um, and doesn't make any connections to like anything in a current era around conversations with cryptocurrencies, with web three, you know, with all these sort of like burgeoning modes of, uh, mediation and and sort of uh, you know meta realities or whatever you want to call them. I, I found it like a I, I found it to be an, an interesting gap. You know, not not tying that together. Um, and and he doesn't often. And I don't think it's the the aim of the book. But uh, I, I whether or not the intention was for us to beg that question, whether or not it, he intended for me to begin thinking about those same sorts of evangelizing kind of modes of of current you know technocrats or whatever you want to call them you know trying to push us into the metaverse trying to push us into web3 projects and and cryptocurrencies and nfts uh i i found myself doing that nonetheless i i, I maybe it's giving him too much credit to think that he's he's actually tying those two things together without ever invoking the names of them well i think though i think part of it is also he i think he's trying to bolster this claim that um it's really everything was really about television in the 90s which comes mm -hmm. later, um, that the matrix is not actually about the internet as people assume now, but it's actually about TV. Now, you know, when, 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 you know, Morpheus says, welcome to the desert of the real, you know, they're on a TV, which I mean, yeah, I mean, I think the Wachowskis are definitely tapping into that, but I mean, to say that they weren't 
I mean, considering the Wachowskis themselves are big gamers, you know, really into internet culture, you know, wanted the Matrix to continue as an online video game, as a, you know, as a kind of dynamic uh, multiplayer game. It's sort of weird to try to try to kind of close that off and not really um, even consider that that's still a factor because he wants to preserve this idea. I think that um, things were hypermediated, uh, especially because of TV but things weren't mapped out in the same way um, that they would be later by the internet. You know, there's no Wikipedia, there's no Twitter, there's no kind of thing index, but it's like, you know, the internet archive started in like the like mid mid nineties, you know, um, people were already beginning to think about, well, you know, what is this work as an He makes the claim that um, no one outside of a computer scientist really understood what the World Wide web meant or would mean. And it's like, well, that's not true. I mean, you know, plenty of people were conceptualizing what an online virtual world would look like, what cyberspace would be, you know, even that t- idea of cyberspace. I mean, that was coined in the eighties, you know, I think what it is, is I'm wondering if I, I mean, we can't read his actual intentions, but I think part of it might be trying to bolster this idea that TV, though, what's funny though, is he gestures towards TV and he talks about TV as this medium that's all pervasive, but then he doesn't really have anything interesting to say about 24 hour news. I don't know how you felt, but I thought his discussion of MSNBC and Fox News wasn't very well fleshed out either. You know, if you're talking about these mediated realities and this idea of media and he kind of gestures towards different events, big events that we've referenced, like, you know, Jay Simpson trial, you know, the Anita Hill hearings. He tries to gesture towards the ways in which television kind of changed them and how this was completely new. And nobody had thought about the way that television was, you know, until that point had changed their discourse. But it's like, well, Neil Postman wrote, um, amusing ourselves to death in the 1980s. Like, I don't really understand where, once again, I think it goes back to what you were identifying before with Cop Killer. It's this idea, well, no one was talking about this until this specific moment and this specific thing happened. Uh, really, I think actually the the most maybe uh, subversive uh, thing in the entire book comes along in the following sort of like minor chapter or sort of subheaded uh, segment, that kind of interstitial piece called Vodka on the Chessboard, uh, where he talks right. about the uh, the U.S. involvement in the in the election in uh, in Russia and how much we were involved both uh, through overt uh, political persuasion and also very likely a lot of covert affairs and, and a lot of election fixing uh, in 1996. This is here. He doesn't seem to ever take it anywhere, but he does simply, you know, state like we would like to maybe not remember this, but it did happen. Uh, that, that, uh, <laughs> that's that his conclusion. You know, uh, it's important that we're aware of this. And yeah, th- that's a funny chapter, too, because I mean, it's probably one of the few times he actually gestures to uh, a geopolitical event outside of the United States. If you think mm-hmm. about it, like it's one of the few times he even admits that there's a world outside his specific slice of the U.S. because and I mean, God, I mean, what happened in Russia in the 90s and our relationship to Russia, you know, not just uh, the relationship between the United States, but even in Canada. And I mean, I mean, even before the events of, of what of what we're experiencing now uh, with Ukraine, I mean, there are a lot of implications to that moment of uh, assisting Yeltsin. Um, I mean, Yeltsin was the one who chose Putin. Um, mm-hmm. The British journalist, Tony Wood, uh, who has this great book called Russia Without Putin, where he kind of analyzes the rise of capitalism in Russia and kind of Putin's place in it. I mean, part of the reason that Yeltsin chose uh, Putin was that Putin was one of the few people who wasn't going to have him arrested, 
basically, yeah. you know, <laughs> <laughs> and cause you know, I mean, Yeltsin, I mean, God, like if you think about it, you know, he, he was supposed to bring capital. And it was funny too, because in during Putin's first term, there was a lot of uh, positive press he received because he was seen as, as, as doing what Yeltsin hadn't done, which was bring capitalism to Russia and bring good capitalism to Russia. I mean, you know, of course, that excises uh, the role of the Harvard boys and shock therapy and how devastating. Yep. I mean, you know, I have um, I have some friends who grew up in Russia in the 90s. And I mean, it just sounds awful mm-hmm. uh, that it was an awful time uh, to, to be to be there. Um, and so, you know, that's one of those things where, you know, because, you know, obviously, Klosterman is not interested in geopolitics. He's not interested in, in those sorts of things. But I mean, that's an event that just has has reverberated you know, and so many different things um, and, and so many different ways, not just politically, but also culturally. It's another one of those moments in the book uh, where I had that strong sensation that he was trying to uh, connect dots without explicitly doing so. You know, you almost mm. wonder if maybe this is uh, his reflection on uh, our involvement in fixing an election in Russia as a way of sort of, you know, uh, offering this countervailing diatribe to a lot of the conversations around Russian interference in the 2016 election, you know, yeah. um, that, that, that maybe that's the intention behind it. But again, we never get there. He never, he never quite makes that conclusion and, and whether or not, uh, it's a, the actual intention, um, of the author to, to get us to think about that thing alongside it, uh, I, I think is up for debate. And again, the, the the one place where he makes a connection to the modern times is at the beginning of the ninth chapter called Sauropods, uh, where he mm. talks a little bit about the COVID-19 pandemic. And he also says, here's something interesting about the times happening right now, since right now is the only place we can ever be. If you ask a semi-educated young person to identify the root cause of most American problems, there's a strong possibility they will say capitalism. And he then goes on to explain that the key distinction between modern youth culture and youth culture of the 90s is that modern youth uh, is opposed to capitalism and 90s youth culture was opposed to consumerism (laughs) and tries to posit one, specifically consumerism, as a more optimistic outlook and worldview that uh, maintains the value of things while uh, arguing against the commodification of them or the reduction of their importance, you know, art for the sake of commercialism, whereas criticizing capitalism is a cynical, uh, pessimistic, out- pessimistic uh, worldview to hold. Uh, and it, it's, it's kind of a, it's just a very bizarre kind of argument he makes. Again, it, it feels a lot like that kind of like old man yelling at cloud kind of quality where the, the two things are so linked uh, and and seem to kind of be different words for the same impulse, um, but he wants to draw like a, a clear line in the sand between one and the other. I mean, like you know, and and he the way he writes about it too is like, well, you might think this way, but this way of thinking is also wrong. Where it's like, I, I wrote down this quote. He's like, capitalism is connected to every extension of American life, so it can be cited as the source for almost any social ill: wealth disparity, the legacy of slavery, housing shortages, uh, monopsony. Clinical depression, the tyranny of choice, superhero movie franchises, and it's like he puts that down. And it's like, well, how can capitalism not be connected to those things? I, I, it's almost like he puts that in there to be like, well, isn't that sort of ridiculous? And then, 
you know, going to that idea of capitalism as being, you know, a critique of capitalism being pessimistic, he, he writes also, a hatred of capitalism is consciously pessimistic. It works from the presence that if you were American, the very structure of your work day reality is pernicious. And it's like, once again, well, why wouldn't somebody think that? Especially now. And even that, even back then, like, how is that an impossible thought? I mean, it's weird that he kind of just dangles that in there as if, well, you know, a lot of people are saying, once again, some people are saying that, you know, this is really bad and pernicious. Uh, it has alleged insidiousness, but it's like, it's, it's very weaselly, I think, what he's doing there. Moving on to talk a little bit about uh, Bill Clinton, finally. Uh, oh, man, this is such a doozy. <laughs> this is, okay, like, this is, all right. I, I I don't even think anybody listening to this podcast, or even if they they read the book, can be prepared for this chapter uh, psychologically, just based on everything that has come before. Because I think <laughs> it is quite possibly one of the most bizarre and and just I think quite I would say it's quite cynical. You know what he does here, and it's quite um, um, it, it's actually quite I found it quite upsetting the way he wrote about the Clinton presidency and this kind of idea of Clinton. He's very angry at um, people who are critical of Bill Clinton. He's very much uh, wanting to preserve a specific image of Bill Clinton that I think was very popular at the time. And that's, that's, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that there was a specific or specific images of Bill Clinton, but that he sees the retrospective critique as being quite revisionist, uh, which really bothers me. Um, especially for Klosterman to sort of accuse others of revisionism, I think is quite, you know, I don't think that's really fair, you know, I think considering what he's doing uh, in this book, especially. Um, what were the moments that stuck out to you the most about his his commentaries on Clinton? Well, I think I brought up one quote from it, which is uh, that being mad at a former president is like being mad at somebody who wronged you in high school. I mean, the difference is, of course, is that the person who wronged you in high school doesn't get to set decades of, you know, uh, economic and social policy that has implications uh, far beyond <laughs> your encounter with them. I mean, you know, I think the 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 anger at a at a at a world leader is quite different compared to personal anger. Um, but I think what's frustrating is that um, is that he doesn't even want to uh, uh, even engage in a good faith way with why people have criticisms of Bill Clinton. Um, the only reason that people want to engage in criticism of Bill Clinton is that um, because he embodies a uh, uh, kind of neoliberalism and because neoliberalism is the evil du jour, therefore everything he did was evil. That's his, that's kind of a big part of his conclusion. Um, I mean, he even goes so far to say, I mean, he doesn't disguise his contempt for this position. He goes so far to say is what Clinton couldn't have anticipated was a future where the left saw ideological prejudice as sacred. That is an actual quote from the book. It's just... Uh, you know, Ross Perot, George Bush, you know, uh, you know, warfare in the Middle East, none of these get the kind of uh, treatment, you know, other, you know, the things that you, you know, these don't really get the jackhammer treatment, but, but criticism of Bill Clinton, he really brings the hammer down in this chapter. He, he gives a considerable more credence to uh, the, the Monica Lewinsky scandal than he does to Clinton's broad embrace of, of uh, sort of center, even center-right, like neoliberalism. Um, I think he even puts it first and says, the thing that he will be most broadly remembered for is this you know, kind of betrayal of the American people. The second thing is neoliberalism. As you said, it, he kind of posits it as a sort of uh, cause du jour and really kind of makes this appeal that says, as you mentioned, that, that there was no way he could have known 
that the that the political <laughs> left would have shifted, you know, um, which is a, a very very interesting kind of read on this. It's a thing that you hear uh, Bill Clinton, but also when you like, you know, when you when you engage with anything about the 2016 election and and Hillary's run up to to that event, the same thing happens in retrospect. I'm not sure if you ever watched Hillary's uh, Hulu documentary series. Oh, I didn't. I couldn't bring myself to do it. Um, if, if you if you I haven't, just... there's no need to. Um, it's it's uh, quite a bit of a slog. It's it's uh, hair pulling in in many of the same ways that this chapter on Bill Clinton is. But one of the common refrains is, "How would we have ever known? You know that uh, it was wrong to call black children super predators. <laughs> how <laughs> how how could we have ever known that uh, you know like passing welfare reform would have led to uh, to you know, massive exp- poverty, <laughs> exactly. you know, child poverty, you know, yeah. Yeah. How would we have known that the crime bill would have led to incarceration rates to you know to uh, triple and, and quadruple over the course of our our tenure in the White House. How would we have known that you know essentially keeping prison labor in in our mansion in the governor's mansion in Arkansas would ever come back to bite us? <laughs> oh man, that's so fucked up too. Because uh, sorry, maybe I shouldn't swear on the show. No, please, know. absolutely, we do okay. it a lot. <laughs> because Hillary actually has a passage in her memoir where she's like she trusted the thieves more, like the murderers more than the thieves, because they, she knew that they wouldn't steal anything. Holy. <laughs> Yes, exactly. But there's, there's this just like grand sort of ahistoricism to it. And this, like this conceit that like all of them were acting in good faith and without any sort of like cynicism or, or doing anything, you know, out of political expediency. Uh, it, it, it just like, it, it seems very, very ignorant, you know, uh, maybe even naivete to just like assume that all of these people are acting in good faith all the time. And it's, it's really you, you know, that, that, that's changed and your perspective on it, not, not the goodness of that thing. Well, I think this is the chapter where um, Klosterman tips his hand um, and reveals what this book is really about, which is an ideological defense of a particular liberal worldview that right now is under crisis. You know, um, neoliberalism was a political project uh, in its most optimistic uh, conception. It was this idea of managing the world, you know, through markets in a very specific way of doing politics. And that politics has shown that it's unable to deal with multiple unfolding crises, you know, and I think 2016 was really, I think for a lot of liberals, uh, a reveal of that crisis point, Um, especially the fact that it was maybe one of the first times that they actually had to confront um, the legacy of the 1990s and the politics under Bill Clinton. Um, And that's why I think there was so much visceral anger, especially towards Bernie Sanders and his supporters, because um, there was sort of this almost feeling of, well, I've never heard this before, you know, and so I think what Klosterman is trying to do quite clearly is defend a very particular worldview that is right now under attack, mounted defense, and really defend the politics that uh, he had at the time and that many like-minded people uh, still have. I think that's exactly right. I think that this comes by and large from Klosterman being really rattled by the results of the 2016 election. That, uh, you know, all of these critiques from the left, I, I think Klosterman is probably somebody who subscribes to the idea that Jill Stein, uh, you know, and Susan Sarandon and Bernie Sanders, like, fucked over Hillary Clinton in this election. You know, he, I, I get the sense that he is someone who legitimately believes those things, that anyone who has this sort of uh, critique from the left 
of the policies of the of the Clinton years of of Hillary Clinton and and anything that she may have done in her time, uh, you know, within the Obama administration. I, I think he sees those things as purely gripes that uh, someone needs to get over something that, you know, came out of nowhere or, you know, sort of like apparated into existence as a, a way of being contrarian. Um, and he uh, he has a quote here at first and he says, there was this interesting thing that was happening during the Clinton administration. Recall Zach De La Roca, the radical Chicano frontman for the band Rage Against the Machine. People were looking inward and not outward. Coming from De La Roca, such a categorization is intended as an evisceration. It's supposed to suggest a kind of dreamlike negligence. What it fails to recognize is that the luxury of looking inward is not always a conscious extension of selfishness. It's sometimes the unconscious manifestation of a satisfying life, which is what government is supposed to offer its people. That won't matter, of course. The process of revisionism is constant. Uh. <laughs> and to me, this is just like, this is the most baffling thing. And I think, again, you know, a thing that that speaks to this sort of like ignorance or unwillingness to like engage with any of these ideas from a political left is that. Zach De La Roca was saying these things in the 90s, you know, Rage Against the Machine, like reached their apex, like in in that era in which he was the president, you know. So these things are not these things are not things that are, are coming out of some sort of uh, revisionism. This isn't like a retrospective, like reappraisal Ooh. of the era just for the sake of it. These things were happening in real time. And I think that he's like unwilling to to navigate that. Uh, one th- one thing I did notice, and I think I brought up to you when we were, you know, discussing the book before we before we got on mic, is that in the the chapter where he talks about socialism, where he talks about Americans, young Americans, eighteen to like twenty nine, favorably viewing socialism as opposed to capitalism, he doesn't once talk about Bernie Sanders. In fact, I think Bernie Sanders' name <laughs> comes up only one time in the entire book, and it's in. Uh, his opposition to the Gulf War. Yeah. I, and and I was like, I was so shocked by it that when I saw this chapter and realized he was shifting and moving on to a different topic, I went to the index just to make sure. And yes, Bernie Sanders' name only appears on one page <laughs> in the entire thing. But he he does manage to mention Elizabeth Warren. And yeah. this, I think, is like the, the real revelation and the, like him, you know, again, you know, kind of showing his ass a little bit where... His his sort of parenthetical is that Elizabeth Warren was criticized and and lost favor with voters because she was unwilling to adopt the socialist moniker, and right uh, and was defeated <laughs> by the extremely online left. You know that yes. that faction that seems to have no power but also all the power in the world, uh, right? Simultaneously, <laughs> <laughs> it was all those super <laughs> online uh, Bernie Bros that that took her down. It was it was uh, you know process of she was she was the real victim here. Yeah, I mean, it it is quite incredible. Um, actually, the one thing that I uh, really just I think, you know, there's that meme of Vince McMahon just like disappearing into a chair and just like I guess it's like it's like there's this meme of Vince McMahon and he's like got this expression on his face like he's just like completely possessed. I think that happened to me that whole process as I was reading this chapter, and I think it reached its apex when he dovetails the discussion of the Clinton presidency with the reappraisal of American beauty and sort of, <laughs> and I, I feel like this has to be read out loud uh, to be believed, but oh, please do. Um, this is on the final page of this chapter. And this is when the exploding brain meme just completely is conceptualized, you know, 
modern people hate American beauty for the same pe reason people in 1999 loved American beauty. It examines the interior problems of upper middle class white people living in the late 20th century, the kind of people who voted for Bill Clinton twice, and perhaps saw fragments of their own selves within the problems he created for himself. And it was in all probability the last time in history such problems would be considered worthy of contemplation. God. <laughs> Just incredible. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, what, what else can you say about that? I mean, the, the thing that's so baffling about it to me is this like insistence upon the idea that like Clinton and his cohort and, and you know, Hillary as a by proxy, like that they are somehow less powerful than they were in the 1990s because of this revisionism in quotes, you know, because of this sort of uh, like reappraisal of, of culture and of of the presidency that like that these ghouls aren't still the people who are controlling like every vestige of the democratic party at large and that their influence isn't felt throughout like everything within the DNC within like various uh, political think tanks that these people like aren't, aren't still working behind the scenes that they don't have any yeah. involvement or, or actual like sway in the way that we approach things. Hillary Clinton still like rapidly endorses candidates all the time, you know, like her endorsement means something mostly to these like center right candidates. Like I, I specifically think of uh, her, endorsing uh, Elliot Engel, the incumbent who was like very center, like Democrat against Jamal Bowman in 2020. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then after yeah. Jamal Bowman, you know, rinsed him because he was the progressive candidate because it was, you know, him, uh, you know, positing himself as a, a man of the people actually living in the district that he was running for, you know, being a black American and his experience, especially in the wake of the George Floyd murder. She, she, she still, uh, endorsed this other person. And after he got smoked, uh, erased memory hold any, any evidence that she ever did it. Like it was taken off of her campaign website. It was oh, taken I had no like, idea. I didn't know that yes. happened. And it's, you know, it's just, it's just funny to think about like this being some sort of like anger as if these people don't, don't still hold sway. And as if they still don't speak for the, the largest kind of cell and like locus of power within the democratic institutions. Because even this claim that the Democrats aren't responding or are ignoring the, the concerns and, and desires of upper middle class white people. I mean, come on. I mean, it's still a constituency that they, they want to capture. I mean, in 2016, their whole strategy was to take away moderate Republican voters away from Trump, you know, that he was going to be that they were going to be so offended that they're going to get pick up all these suburban voters, you know, in um, Joe Biden's uh, primary victory in um in South Carolina, um, I mean that was driven a lot by by a large portion of of, of white suburban support. Um, I mean these are the voters that are, and even when you know they're gesturing towards this idea of you know we're building a multiracial coalition, a lot of that is to please these white suburban voters, so that these particular a particular type of white liberal voter feels like, well, I'm participating in something by voting for Joe Biden. I'm actually opening the door for like, it's this weird kind of, you know, just conception of politics and where, where, yeah, like, it's like, you know, by, by voting for this white candidate, I'm opening the doors for non-white candidate. You know, it's just, it's completely just unbelievable and how like Hillary herself became an avatar for, you know, like remember, uh, you know, Hillary is your abuela, you know, remember like, like these sort of weird kind of yeah. <laughs> pieces of rhetoric. And so this idea that the moment has passed for 
the concerns of a particular type of contradictory, you know, upper middle class white people to have their concerns addressed. I mean, is is not true. I mean, yeah, and it's it's sort of weird that you know that that's sort of his final move. You know, in that um, well, you know, you might not like it, but you know, there was a period in time where we used to care about these things, and it's like, well, these are things that we still care about. I mean, you know. I think the rejection of American beauty as a, as a movie, I mean, there's a lot of other factors in that as well. I mean, I do think that's one of them though. I mean, the realization that the type of narrative that it's offering is just completely un, you know, unsustainable. And it's weird to, his reading of the movie is weird too, because it's like, Oh, well, you know, um, uh, the Spacey's wife in the film is now seen as heroic, whereas before she's seen as villainous. And it's like, well, I mean, I don't know if it's if it's that clear cut in terms of how people are trying to reinterpret that movie. I mean, I think it's <laughs> a bit more complicated. And I mean, it's not and it's not just because of, of, of course, what's happened with Kevin Spacey now. I mean, there are just multiple reasons. I mean, I think American Beauty is interesting to think about as a kind of a series of films that came out in 1999 that were trying to sum up, you know, that particular time period. Like, you know, you have Fight Club, The Matrix, um, you know, uh, I'm sure I'm forgetting other really important 99 films, but, you know, um, there was sort of a kind of, I guess, pervasive feeling at, I think at the end of the nineties of like, well, what does this all mean? You know? And I think some films are still interesting in terms of how they explored that. And others, I think were, were much less interesting and limited. And I think the problem with American beauty was that compared to, you know, the matrix, like it was much more limited in what it was thinking about, you know? Yeah, I mean, again, this is all that thing that, despite uh, you know, Clusterman's removal of the self, uh, attempts to objectify, or rather, to to show a level of objectivity, it, it all just kind of comes back to a a very sort of blinkered, very sort of like winnowed down perspective, uh, that is really just a, a lot of I statements, given as as broad you know, generalizations. Yeah. And then the next chapter is just sort of just a continuation a little bit. I mean, I don't know if there's really much to say about his final, because he doesn't really have like a final thesis statement or kind of idea about what it means that, you know, he sees it as the end of decades, right? Like the the nineties is kind of the end. He doesn't, you know, he sort of gestures towards Y2K. He talks about the election. I mean, mostly to castigate, uh, Nader voters for being self-righteous yeah you know and all the Nader voters disappeared after the you know and it's just like okay oh my god um <laughs> one of the other interesting things about that that i noticed too is that you know yet again he does that uh that thing where he kind of lets everyone off scot-free by uh offering a sort of both sides analysis where he he makes the claim that no one really knows who won florida in in 2000 uh and and you know mentions the the initial concession and the retraction of the concession that it was called for Gore, then for Bush and that Gore eventually conceded. I, you know, was reading this and making sure I wasn't missing anything. I went back and looked specifically in the index for any indications or or conversation about the Brooks brothers riot. It's not there, you know, like it, it seems like a, a kind of glaring omission to not talk about the fact that this election is one that was like kind of stolen, you know, <laughs> that like if he's if he's so profoundly like frustrated with the idea of, you know, people not sort of kowtowing to like the the kind of general narrative of liberalism or or to, you know, whoever the president is or whoever the Democrat is at the time, you know, this kind of scathing indictment of third party voters. It seems weird to kind of leave out the fact that, uh, you know, the GOP and a lot of their operatives were explicitly involved in trying to, uh, you know, confound this effort to to get a legitimate count of the votes in Florida. 
And like, I mean, I, I, I'm not misremembering this. I thought in a long recount that like Gore did actually win Florida. Like, didn't he That's, actually win? That is my understanding too, that it's like, eventually <laughs> it would have come out. But I think what ended up happening is that, uh, you know, these, these GOP operatives were the ones who were like, literally roadblocking you know kind of like railroading uh anyone who would have been involved in that counting process they were trying to get it to stop you know like once once it had gone bush's way they were they were trying to avoid anything and and gore could have very rightfully you know let it drag on let it let it go on and and have it settled in court or you know have have this count actually done in an official manner and a lot of it was just kind of him like rolling over you know it was and that's the other thing too i mean that doesn't that actually presage a kind of uh form of democratic politics that we've seen play out again and again and again you know absolutely where when it actually comes to confrontation there's no willingness there's no to to confront you know we're being told that democracy is under threat constantly you know um or at least sorry i should be clarifying because i'm canadian i mean at least in the states though that that rhetoric is in canada but in a different form but you know you're always you know because you know we've had we've had our own trucker the the trucker convoy um though it's interesting to sort of see the rhetoric um that gets proffered as like a, being a rhetoric of of threat but then that threat is never answered and i i mean we do have something comparable um, here up here as well in terms of our own liberal parties, you know, basically. Um, now, the thing is, what's interesting is that if you have a what's called a majority government under the Westminster system, you actually have quite a bit of control, actually. You have a lot that you can do. Um, um, there are some, there are checks and balances, but there are, I mean, you can wield like just quite a bit of power, um, which, which to some degree gets wielded, but um, there's also a bit of capitulation and a bit of, you know, kind of, um, uh, an unwillingness to kind of really confront some of these these issues that I think are quite significant, and I think create opportunities for the right in different contexts um, to try to take over. It's funny though because the difference in Canada is that um, our conservatives are kind of a, a somewhat afraid of their base. Like it feels like the GOP <laughs> are much more responsive. Our conservatives are kind of constantly trying to say, "Well, we're the nice, cuddly conservatives. You know, we're the compassionate." people we're actually in the center we're not like some of the the other crazy people which is kind of an interesting dynamic that plays out here all the time yeah here in the states it's just the democrats who keep insisting that the gop are the nice republicans and you know <laughs> that there that there are just you know, bad, bad actors yeah. oh my god yeah some of the worst um and really as you mentioned you know that kind of brings us to the conclusion of the piece here the last chapter called the end of the, the decade the end of decades it doesn't postulate anything really beyond that. He kind of makes that claim that this is the last time that that there was a definitive decade, I guess, you know, pre 9-11, but doesn't, it doesn't pull out at all to a, a sort of more, to a grander view of things, to a bigger picture. It, it, it just sort of kind of begins and ends. And I, I felt kind of de- deflated by the conclusion yeah. of the book. Well, because also, I mean, it feels like he's sort of subtly blaming Nader for everything that happened under Bush. Like, even though the thing, you know, you know, he says that that they lost everything or something about Nader voters. And it's like, well, you know, I mean, the fact that people actually may have viewed Bush and Gore as interchangeable. Well, why was that? You know, um, what does that mean in the larger scheme of things? And also, you know, in terms of what happened in politics um throughout the you know early 2000s i mean i mean well you know he's not even willing to kind of confront that the way in which it was such a definitive shift and why it was it like like that moment in the 90s where it felt like i guess 
maybe in a subjective way that there's this, you know, uh, larger space for introspection or luxury, even if, you know, that's not um, entirely the case for, for everyone. Um, well, well, shouldn't there be some sort of maybe thought or kind of discussion about the why that changed or how that changed? And there's not really any, you know, there seems to be, I think, an undue amount of blame on anyone who would want to disrupt these narratives versus the people who actually enacted the, the, the political, the changing kind of political realities, you know, and, and kind of continued and consolidated a lot of these trends from the 90s. And I think that's the problem, right? His unwillingness to kind of critique the 90s is also why he doesn't really have an analysis for anything after. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, if, if we're wrapping up and, and kind of talking about it a little bit more broadly and, and pulling out to the big picture here, the interesting thing about it to me is the ways in which the beginning of the book uh, seems to offer this defense of Gen Xers, you know, calling them the least annoying generation, talking about how they they complain a lot less, you know, that they're a little bit more resigned. Um, and I, I, there's just kind of a, a blunt irony to that uh, completely giving way to nothing but sort of complaints and criticisms by the end, you know. And, and you know, very, uh, again, just very sort of like, uh, very myopic ones at, at that. It, uh, it, if the book is good for anything, and I and I don't really, you know, I, I can't recommend people spend a terrible amount of time with the book or, you know, pick it up. Uh, I, I don't think it's going to be one that's, you know, sort of remembered as like, a, you know, a, 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 you know, enduring artifact of anything. But but what it is fascinating as is, is kind of seeing the ways in which uh, Gen X and a lot of people of that of that cohort and generation still fail to kind of really reconcile uh, the culture in which they were brought up in and the experiences of it uh, into uh, a, a coherent worldview that explains a lot of the things that happened after it and in our, our modern times as well. Um, to me, to me, I find that, you know, fascinating, but again, uh, at times, uh, incredibly infuriating to read. Yeah. I mean, you, you'll probably pick up everything that we've talked about or, well, quite a few of these things in the Vulture interview, um, anyway. Right. I mean, though, I, I am glad I read the book to sort of see where, where some of that perspective is coming from and, you know, think about it. I mean, the same way as I said before, whenever Steven Pinker releases a new book saying we live in the best of all possible worlds, like it's as there's more and more, I think we're going to see more books like this, unfortunately coming out from different authors that are the same where we're basically telling you, well, you know what, in the long run, everything is going to be fine. Um, and I think we should really question that and criticize that because it's pretty clear to most people that, you know, things are kind of, you know, very precarious right now. Yeah. Absolutely. Completely agree with that assessment of it. And uh, I do have to thank you immensely, Alex Ross, for uh, being willing to, to go along with me on this journey into the abyss, you know, <laughs> in, into the heart uh, of no, darkness. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, I mean, it's about the friends you make along the way. You know, that's that's the more important thing. <laughs> absolutely. And uh, and you are now a, a friend of the show for life. Alex, please come back anytime. We'll, we'd love to have you on to talk about uh, to talk about a movie at some point, too. And, and, you know, hang out with us in our our normal format. That would be awesome, actually. I'd, I'd really enjoy that. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me on and, and giving me the opportunity to air some thoughts about this book. Because, you know, I think with Klosterman, while was never like a, a huge Klosterman fan, he was somebody, you know, growing up that, you know, through his early writings, we sort of amongst people, my, you know, grow, you know, at, when I was in my early 20s that we read and talked about. And, you know, I even thought probably at one point, you know, when I was, you know, 20 that, you know, oh, you know, 
he's, he's kind of cool. And it's kind of interesting to see this kind of like, Oh no, there's like some bitterness here, you know, and see that uh, kind of flourish. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I don't think I knew, uh, knew a single person in, in college who was, you know, really into music and, and culture at, at large who didn't have a copy of Sex, Drugs, Cocoa Puffs on their shelf. You know, I, I, I never read it myself, but I, maybe I was the exception to the rule. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, it is it is fun to see that evolution. And uh, it was it was a real pleasure having you on, Alex. Where can uh, where can people find you? Well, I guess right now they can find me on Twitter um, at uh, the my my handles at Alex Ross Writes, um, which is sort of the name that I've had for a long uh, time. It's also weirdly my my PlayStation Network name because uh, coincidentally I came up with both my Twitter name and PSN name at the same time. Uh, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> and uh, I, I sort of have a website, but I don't really I don't really have anything like new on it. So I don't I don't think I'll I'll put that up. But you know, you, you can find me on Twitter. That's sort of the place I, I kind of hang out. So. If, uh, anybody has any thoughts or, um, um, or, or anything like that, or just wants to, uh, you know, follow my random musings, uh, that's where you can find me. Awesome. Thank you so much again, Alex. Uh, as always, you can follow along with us at hit factory pod. Uh, you can also subscribe to the show on Patreon for $5 a month for bonus content, biweekly episodes, and a lot of other fun stuff. Uh, that's at patreon.com slash hit factory pod. Shout out to our capitalist overlords. Their names are Linda and Jesse K. And we will catch you all next time.
right, we get even. <laughs> Tonight we get even! <laughs> <laughs> 